0: Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be back. I was in England um, and had a fantastic time. I studied at Oxford. That's why I have the t shirt now. So I can now say that and sound very prestigious for people are like, well, back when I was studying in Oxford and make myself sound really smart. But it's beautiful. Imagine like going to Hogwarts Castle. That's what the whole city is like. And uh, some brilliant people got to learn from. <clears throat> and just uh, really enjoy my time there. So hopefully um, I'll get to share uh, some of that with you. So if you're just joining us, welcome. My name is Sam, and I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, because we were too intimidated to preach the entire book of Romans, uh, this summer we decided to just go through one single chapter. Uh, Someday uh, we'll have the courage to tackle Romans, but not quite yet. That said, Uh, Many theologians have described, actually, Romans chapter 8 as the best chapter in the Bible. And I have often encouraged people, if you're going to memorize a chapter in the Bible, start with Romans chapter 8. In his book about Romans chapter 8, it's a book titled, How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home, a Reformed pastor and theologian, Derek Thomas Wrote this. He said, No chapter of Scripture reaches the same sustained levels or covers the same ground as Romans 8. It's a description of the Christian life from death to life, from justification to glorification, from trial and suffering to the peace and tranquility of the new heaven and new earth. It contains exhortations to persevere as well as reassurances of God's preservation of his people. And no chapter has been cited more than this one in expounding the application of redemption in the life of an individual. In short, Romans 8 gives us a picture of salvation in its completeness. That's a pretty powerful commentary about this chapter. So if this is the first time you've read chapter 8, I encourage you to read it many times because it is a powerful chapter. And it begins with one of the most powerful statements Uh, in all of Scripture, a very encouraging statement. Paul's description of those who believe the gospel saying that there is now, not to come, but right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Awesome verse. That's a tattoo verse. I've got one on this arm. I think I'll stick Romans 8, 1 on this arm because it's just powerful. These words followed the last words, obviously, of chapter 7. If you remember those words, that's where Paul declared Jesus to be the only one who could deliver him from this internal war that is being waged in all of us between the flesh and the spirit. He's like, ah, how might I get out of this body that's fighting against what I want to do? And he says, Jesus, only Jesus. He teaches that only those who are in Christ, escape God's wrath and find life eternal. To be found in Christ. If you would go through the whole New Testament, which I bet you won't do, but I did it for you, not really, I just looked this up. In Christ is possibly the most common description of a Christian in the New Testament, used 75 times to be in Christ. To be in Christ is not merely just to be into Christ intelligently. Oh, I'm so into Christ, right? No, it's to be in Christ is to be immersed in Jesus Christ spiritually. What baptism represents, right? You didn't just dip your toe in. You get immersed, covered in all areas. To be in Christ is to be covered by Christ, to be hidden in Christ Whereby what we were in this life, past, present, even future, dies. And what Jesus is begins to live in us and through us for all eternity. Those who surrender their lives to Jesus are not merely taken out of something bad, though they are, but they are in fact placed into someone good. Someone good. Christianity isn't just about getting out of hell and getting into heaven. Christianity is much more intimate and much more deeper and powerful than that. The Bible uses many different theological terms, big words to describe this life-changing event of coming into Christ, being in Christ. And each one has its own unique meaning. Right? you got Salvation. We probably use that most often. And salvation has this idea of being rescued from sin. And it is very liberational. It pictures God as this warrior rescuing us from something really bad, something that's destroying us and destroying this world. We also talk about the idea of ransom, redemption. I've been ransomed. I've been bought, purchased. Debt has been paid and that by the blood of Jesus. There's a transactional experience that's happening. And God is viewed as the Redeemer, the one who's paying this ransom. You have justification. you probably heard that word before, maybe. And that's where you're declared innocent, and even righteous. It's a legal term, right? There's a judicial aspect where God is a judge. And you have these ideas of rebirth, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again. And we are being made into something brand new. So there's this transformational aspect where, where God is a creator but also a recreator. And so you have all these aspects, and there are several more to talk about of when we're talking about what it means to be in Christ, what it means to believe the gospel, what happens. It's it, there's so many different ways to look at it. But this morning I want to explore one particular way of what it means to be in Christ. And that is this idea of adoption. Very different than those others. So if you'd read with me in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, we're only going to go a few verses. It says in verse 14, You're not going to like this one. We suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's just stop. We're going to tell the text we're going to go, but just stop for a second and, and think about something that I think should amaze us. If it doesn't amaze you, that's okay, but it should someday. The kind of language God uses to describe the salvation of mankind. You think of all the ways he could have described salvation. I've named some of them. But he didn't only rescue us. He didn't only forgive us for the rebellious criminals that we are, the prisoners of sin that we became. He didn't only save us. He didn't only cleanse us. says he adopts us. He chose to identify Himself as our Father and call us His children. You realize God didn't have to do that. This reveals so much about the heart of God and honestly distinguishes Christianity from all other faiths. This is not merely some transactional thing where I'm going to pay the debt because you screwed up so badly. I'm going to clean you up because you're so messy. I'm going to rescue that from which you cannot rescue yourself. I'm going to transform you into something new. He says, no, God, in this case, by adopting, is very personal, very relational. Now, it follows that before we are in Christ through adoption, we are, by implication, somehow fatherless orphans. Something happened. We are lost boys, lost girls, with the deepest of father wounds. I'm sure in culture you have heard it spoken of, perhaps you've spoken about it, this idea of father wounds, which I don't think is something to make fun of, it is a legitimate description of something that happens with the absence of a father figure or a father in your life. Now, we certainly can use that in bad ways, but if we just kind of take it for what it is, earthly fathers do and can cause kinds of wounds from their abuse or their abandonment. That happens. The role of a father in the life of a child is huge. And so if that role is abused or abdicated, problems naturally occur because in the creative order, God placed fathers to have a huge influence. Now, the effects of these wounds are pretty undeniable, though people have gone a little crazy with trying to blame those things for every behavior under the sun. However, the effects of a father can include things like Low self-esteem can include deep emotional pain, uh, some need to perform, um, those types of things. But overall, I think the wounds of an earthly father often provide feelings of unworthiness. Or people end up feeling lost and they seek or go into the world trying to prove that they are worthy in the worst kinds of ways. That's not the only reason that people do that, but it certainly is one. Now, theologically, so that was just earthly speaking, that happens to people. Many times when I'm counseling people, I'll ask them, tell me about your dad. Not because I'm trying to figure out what their dad did to screw them up, but there is a huge effect. But theologically, we have a perfect dad. Theologically, we have a perfect father who did not abuse us, who did not abandon us, who remained faithful. And yet, guess what we did? We ran. We ran from the perfect father. We didn't have an excuse to say, Oh, you're a jerk or you don't love me. He was perfect. We are self made orphans, like prodigals, right? We are dirty, we are unlovable. We are orphans who are full of guilt over what we have done and shame over what has been done to us. And the effects of our runaway father wounds are undeniable. I want you to think about this. And this is, um, we just got done with Ecclesiastes, right? And that emptiness that we all feel in many ways, in all ways perhaps, it goes back to the fact that we have turned away from our God. As orphans, we feel rejected because we don't have a father who we know wants us. As orphans, we feel vulnerable because we don't have a father to protect us. As orphans, we feel lost because we don't have anyone to guide us. As orphans, we feel alone because there's no family to love us. As orphans, we feel hopeless without a father to bless us with a wonderful future. And so what happens? To continue the metaphor, right? We sit in what amounts to the devil's adoption agency. Homeless. Helpless. We can't get ourselves out. And pretty hopeless because no one's coming to see us. And what happens? We sit there feeling unworthy because no one wants us. Now, we don't admit that out loud, but it's declared by how we live. We feel unworthy. We try to prove that we're worthy. But what happens? Someday I'll do a sermon series called But God. But God walks in And he comes in and he says, I choose you. And he's looking around like, did he point past me? Right? Is, there must be some other kids that he's pointing at here. And he said, no, I choose you. And what does the accuser at the front desk do? Oh, man. Do you know what that kid has done? Do you know how troubled that kid is? How many things that that kid has screwed up on? How far short that kid has fallen? Do you know how much work it's going to take to raise that messed up, broken, nasty kid? And we hear all that. We're like, uh, I'm, uh, I'm here. I hear that. And you know what the Lord says? So Here's what he replies to that accuser. Oh, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> you don't know. You don't. It's way more than what's in that file. You don't know the half of what that kid's done. But guess what? Without even pausing, he says, that's my son. That's my daughter. That was the one that was lost. But now they've been found that's good news. That's the best news because guess what? He fully knows who we are and he accepts it. Incredible. Unbelievable. Because we're like, you you don't want me. You don't know what, I'm not, you know, I'm nearly not worthy. He says, yeah, I know that. Of course I know that but I'm going to make you worthy. So the father picks us up and he takes us into his home, into his family. He adopts us. That's that language, right? The adoption. And he, he gives us a new identity. And he raises us as his own. And he doesn't live, we don't live, or you ought not live with a fear of like, wow, well, maybe I'm going to be, he's going to take me back one day. That's not how the Lord's adoption works. This isn't foster care, hope that they get to stay unless they're really horrible and cause a lot of problems or someone else takes them back. No, this is adoption final and complete. According to Ephesians one, the seal of our adoption is the spirit of God. That's the seal, that's the stamp. The helper, right, the comforter, the the teacher comes to dwell in our hearts. That seals our adoption. And though it is only used once in the Bible, it's interesting that reformer John Calvin suggested that the adopter was the first title of the Spirit. The Spirit begins to lead us. That's what he says in verse 14, that for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And it's interesting to read this carefully because we often read it wrongly. The principal experience of adoption is relational, but the primary purpose of adoption is actually holiness. Knowing every detail of our dossier of sin, and he does more than we could even write ourselves. God in Christ accepts us who, as we are. But as I was in Oxford this last week, <laughs> Sam Alberry said something that was powerful to me. He said this, God's love for us as we are is a sign of His grace, but it is not a sign of His approval. Whew. That's why he's super smart. God's love for us as we are is a sign of His grace, but it is not a sign of His approval. Paul writes that those who are sons of God are led by the Spirit of God, and that's not an imperative command like, be led, though that at times is said, walk in the Spirit. Set your mind on the Spirit. But this is an indicative statement. It indicates a fact, like right? those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. To be led by the Spirit of God could be said to be the very definition of a Christian. But when we talk about being led, we're not simply talking about being just directed, Right? As Christians, we do seek the counsel and should seek the counsel of God's Spirit in our decision making. But to be led by the Spirit is not just to be guided by Him, it's to be governed by Him from the inside out. Building off of verse 13 in Romans 8, we're being led by the Spirit, in part, means putting to death the deeds of the flesh, right? We hate sin because the Spirit in us hates sin. Even if we struggle with sin, we're never settled with sin. Because the Spirit in us is warring against the flesh. We desire to put to death the deeds of the body. And so instead of seeking the Spirit to know what we should do, though we should do that, the Spirit works in us to show us how we ought to live. As children of God, the Spirit in us is perpetually crushing the power of sin and inspiring us to walk in God's ways with joy. As the Spirit wars against our flesh, what's happening is that we are maturing. We are growing to the fullness of manhood into Jesus Christ. In Galatians, Paul writes that the Spirit of God has been sent into our hearts. And he says in sending him and in dwelling in there, he begins to produce stuff in us. Like what? Well, the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Those are starting to come out. They're growing. The Spirit is doing that. It should not surprise us that the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, is most Devoted to producing holiness in us. Slowly, like fruit on a tree, that I'm finally getting apples on my apple tree after how many years, right? We love for like Jesus to come in and just make us perfectly patient and perfectly self-controlled and perfectly good and kind in all we do, but we all know you're all sinners as I am, and that doesn't happen overnight. Fruit grows though, and it is certainly to come, or certain to come. Slowly, but positively, the Holy Spirit, you know what He does? He conforms the Father's adopted sons into the image of His only begotten Son. That's the goal. He loves us. He accepts us as you are, but He loves you too much to leave you there. So He adopts you and says, here's the goal. I'm going to put my spirit in you, and it's going to make you start to look like my real, natural, beautiful, perfect son, Jesus. And what's beautiful about that is, as much as we are participating in that, he is doing that in us, producing that in us. For some, a fruitful life of godliness like this, honestly, can sound like a little bit of a hassle. Let's be honest about that, right? A little bit of a hassle, especially if it's dependent upon me. If i got to make myself all these things. And so I want you to, to hear this. The presence of God's Spirit makes all the difference on how we view this pursuit of holiness. Consider verses 15 and 16. Here's what it says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, so the spirit of adoption is supposed to be, according to Scripture, the spirit of liberty and freedom, not a spirit of slavery. But I've met many Christians who say, man, this is hard. It's a little bit of a hassle to be good. You realize that prior to our adoption, we had no other option. Hey, that rhymes. Didn't even mean to do that. We were slaves to sin. Oz Guinness, when I was at Oxford this past week, (laughs) I was talking to him. No, he, he said something. These guys are brilliant. Like, they take little quips. I probably posted most of them on Facebook. I'm like, oh, you're so brilliant, and I'm so dumb, it feels like, right? But he said this, Never forget that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. There was a time, no matter who you are, where you were enslaved to sin and you could not please God. Before God chose me, before God forgave me, before God adopted and blessed me, you're governed by the power of sin. Governed by it. Outside of Christ, you are enslaved to guilt, you're enslaved to shame, you're enslaved to your past, you're enslaved to disobedience. It doesn't mean you are the worst you could be, but you are not good. Apart from Christ, we are unable and unwilling to know or follow God's ways. That's what the Bible says. Apart from the spirit of adoption... The Bible describes us as children of wrath, following the power of the prince of darkness, rebellious in body and mind. That's how the Bible describes us outside of Christ. Romans 8, previously in this chapter, described us in our flesh as hostile towards God, refusing to submit to God's law, unable, unable to follow God's ways one who cannot please God, one who cannot please God no matter how much good they do. They're enslaved. But the adoption of God, the spirit of adoption brings liberation from that condemnation, from the inability to please God. And it frees us to serve God, guess what? Without fear of failure. Did you know that's the gospel? Let me put it this way. The Lord planned for your failure. That's the gospel. There's nothing in any way that you have failed or you've screwed up on or fallen short that he didn't go, oh gosh, I didn't see that. That was in the second file, right? He took it all, knew it all, came in and said, No, 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 I know way more than that. And I still choose to love this son or daughter. Something changes the spirit of adoption, brings us into his family. And it's not that I have to please God, I now get to and want to. Yet, what does Paul warn us? Don't fall back into slavery. Back into slavery. So let me ask you just a really basic question. Do the ways of Christ feel like slavery to you? Do they feel like slavery? Do they feel like a burden? Because we have to be careful not swinging from the prodigal son to the prodigal older brother. Do you know what I mean by that? That story? The prodigal son, we love the prodigal sons. Prodigal sons are the ones that go get themselves dirty and messed up. and We're like, we love the Lord accepts that. But what about the prodigal older brother who's just as far away from the father by being good? Luke 15 tells the story, if you're not familiar with it, of these two sons. And the story is actually more about the older brother than it is about the younger, but it's become more known about the younger brother. But the younger son, right, what is he? He comes up to his dad he says, I want the inheritance right now. Before he's even dead, which is pretty disrespectful and dishonoring, father gives him the inheritance, and he leaves, and he go he goes into the world and squanders every single penny on reckless living. Eventually, he decides, you know what? I'm in such a bad situation here. Um, he's basically like uh, goes into slavery. He kind of indentured service so that he can just basically eat and and survive. And as he's feeding the pigs, he's longing for the food that he's feeding the pigs. He's like, well, I guess I could go back home. At least I could be a slave for my dad. And so that's what he does. He goes back home, not expecting anything, and his father sees him, and what does his dad do? He's like booking out there. Oh, yeah, it's my boy! He's like throws on a robe on him, gives him a ring. He's like, let's have a huge party, and he celebrates. Everyone is pleased. Except older brother. Older brother's sitting there and he's just watching this. And here's what he says Dad, look, these many years I served you and I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I did everything right. I served you, I never disobeyed, I didn't get a party you realize that the older brother is just as far away from the father as the younger brother was in the slop i wouldn't describe the older brother as free he's enslaved in his own home he's just as proximity close to the father yet doesn't understand the freedom of living and enjoying the father do the ways of Christ feel like slavery to you? Do they feel like duty? I have to do this? I would argue that the prodigal older brother still served out of fear like a slave in his father's own house. And if the gospel of Christ and the ways of Christ seem like a hassle, I would argue that you don't really understand the gospel. The gospel frees us from any form of punishment of the law, a law that we couldn't obey if we wanted to and we didn't want to. The gospel gives life where the law could only bring death and through the gospel God ceases to be our judge. He ceases to be our boss and he becomes our father and all of our lives becomes a response to the love that we have, not the love that we have to earn. We already have it. I don't adopt God, he adopts me. Don't forget that. He adopts you and through faith is where it comes, right? Why am I worthy? You're not. You're trusting that Jesus' obedience for you, Jesus' death on the cross for you, Jesus' resurrection from the dead for you is why you can enjoy the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. That's the gospel. I think it's incredibly interesting, and one of the commentators made this point that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he could have begun with so many other things. He could have said, Our Lord in heaven, or Our God in heaven, or Our Creator in heaven, or Our Judge in heaven, or Our King in heaven, and all those would have been correct. But what does he say is the steps, if you will, to communion with God? My Father. J.F. Packer said, the revelation to the believer that God is his Father is, in a sense, the climax of the Bible. It's the climax. This way, Paul says here that by the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. He some, says something similar in Galatians 4.6. There he says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you catch both of those. There's two spirits saying two different things, but they're saying the same thing, I should say. The spirit of God is crying out in us, and our spirit is crying in us right? There's a deep unity in the soul with God. This isn't about superficial behavior. This isn't about looking religious. This is inside out. Something quite deep is crying out and the spirit is crying out. The spirit in us witnesses that we are children of God with our spirits, right? So think about this, that cry of Abba Father, which we understand later is daddy. That cry is not for God, It's for us to remember who we are in those times of doubt, in those times of weakness, in those times of, do I really know? Abba, Father, yes, he knows, as every perfect and loving father knows. And yes, he responds. But it's not to get his attention in many ways. It's to bring recollection to our mind of who we are in Christ. This cry, as I said, is often compared to a child's call for daddy. And so for the older or manly among us, that might be hard, right? I'm supposed to say daddy. I wouldn't imagine you actually speaking that. Perhaps in your most desperate times you would to your heavenly father. It's interesting. I've seen the oldest of people when they freak out, yell for mommy or daddy, right? In those times of great desperation, it's like in us. But I, rather than focusing on whether you have to say daddy in your prayers, I think you should consider what this tells us about the nature of our relationship, that there's a real assurance there that we are always his children. We're always his children. We never fall out of the nest with God. And though we mature and, and we grow Though we become stuffy, non-joyful adults sometimes, the Father views us as children that He delights in, ready to respond. You know what that's like if you're a mom or a dad, when your child cries and your child's in need, you're compelled. That's how the Father responds to us. That's what we mean by adoption, that the father is listening, the father is is waiting, the father is watching, like, oh man, what's Sam gonna do? Like that's what he that's what he's doing. He's always loving, he's always ready to embrace. He's not a father who says, I told you so. He's not a father who says, Well, get yourself out of that mess. He's not a father that says, I'm too busy. I got stuff to do. And he's never a father that says, I'm sorry, you're too far gone. You're too far gone. When we think about God as father because of the spirit of adoption in us, that's good news. We should settle on that and stand on that and remind ourselves of that. That yes, as fathers, we fail. And your fathers have failed, but we all have a father that never does. Well, lastly, as we look at verse 17, our adoption as God's children has benefits now, but also in eternity. Our adoption should compel us to live with a sense of perspective of what is and a sense of kind of anticipation of what is to come. So in verse 17, he says, And if your children, if this is true, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. So if you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus and his obedience and not your own, if you are putting to death because some power in you, which is the spirit, the deeds of the flesh, like I hate sin, I don't want to sin, I'm not settled with sin, I'm fighting against sin, If you are led by the Spirit that way, becoming more like Christ slowly but positively, then you are a child of God. And here it says if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God, the richest dad in the world, in the universe. See, the only begotten son, right, is Jesus, the natural heir of the Father. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus, He was appointed heir of all things. I mean, Jesus inherits the whole universe and everything in it. And so by virtue of adoption, we're called heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's ridiculous. We kind of skip over that sometimes. But God's children stand to receive everything that God owns because we are co-heirs with Christ. And God owns everything. Do I know what that means exactly? No! But it sounds pretty good. We will inherit the world. We will have everything to serve us. We will have everything to exist for God's glory and for our joy. Everything. The book of Ephesians tells us the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it. So we don't have it yet. We have yet to obtain our inheritance. And later in Romans 8, it will say, we're waiting for the fullness of our adoption to come to pass. And he says, the redemption of our bodies. Now, I don't know about you, but as I laid down last night, my body was twitching all weird because my nerves are so messed up. I was praying and looking forward to the redemption of my body. The day when all things, all sicknesses, all brokenness, all tears will be wiped away and the fullness of everything that God designed us to be will come to pass. How glorious that will be. Right now, yes, we experience through the spirit of adoption renewed hearts, but there is going to be a day when all things are made completely new. And there is great hope in the certainty of such a great inheritance thinking about eternity. We, we have a tendency to keep our heads down, looking right in front of us and not thinking much about eternity at all. But there's a qualifier on this inheritance, right? What does it say? Our inheritance comes provided we suffer with Christ. Uh-oh. Here is the fine print, right? You're going to get an awesome inheritance from my kid. And you're like, wait, wait, what's that? What are those little words down there, the little asterisk? Well, provided you suffer. What can that mean? Now you notice it doesn't say suffer like Christ. Though there are certainly aspects of being a child of God where we will suffer like Christ. That's not what this particular text is talking about. It says suffering with Christ. The suffering that Paul is referring to is honestly just the meat grinder of life. The suffering that comes from living in this broken life. Romans 8.18, the next verse we'll preach next week, he says, For I consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. It's the suffering of our daily lives. It is Ecclesiastes. It's the difficulties. It's the disillusionments. It's even the devastations. But what does he say? That Christ's children don't suffer. God's children don't suffer alone. They suffer with the comforting spirit of Christ. Knowing that our suffering is not the end of the story, believing that there is a future glory, not to be given to God, but to be received from God, helps us to live with eternity in view. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. We must never forget that there's a fullness of our adoption to come, a consummation where we become all that God created us to be. And there's great hope in the certainty of such a great inheritance. It should compel us and it should cause us to look at the things of this world so differently because they can't compare with what is to come. And for a people that live for what is to come as opposed to what is, you will live differently. I believe you live with more joy, with more hope. As I close, I want to remind us that if God planned for our adoption before the foundation of the world, he planned for us to run away from him. This is the verse that Mark read in the beginning. Think about what he says here. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, to do what? That we should be holy, implying that we were going to be unholy. That we should be blameless, implying that we had things to be blamed for. But that we'd be holy and blameless before Him. In love. Why did He do that? Because God loves and in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself. Not just adoption to His team. Yeah, team Jesus. Adoption to His family. To Himself relationally as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of the will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. God planned to save only sinful orphans That he would make holy and blameless. God chose to adopt really a bunch of messy, broken, deplorable people into his family. And through faith in Jesus Christ, give them a new name and a new life and a new hope. The heart of the gospel is adoption. By grace, God paid the greatest of costs to redeem the greatest of sinners to show them the greatest of love by conforming them to the greatest of His sons. In Christ, we are God's children. And I want you to think about this as we leave. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Father says to you, as He says to Jesus, not then, not someday, but now, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. When you think of the Father's face behind the smile of Jesus Christ, is it a frown? Because it shouldn't be. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And that was spoken to Jesus before he did a single minute of ministry or mission. Because of who God said he was. God is pleased in you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are God's children. And when He says to us that I'm well pleased in you, that means so much. Why? Because He really knows you. He really knows you. God loves us as we are, but too much to leave us as we are. Part of the Gospel is that God in Christ is pleased with us, but another part is that we get to change to live with Him in eternity. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I pray today that you will surrender your life to Him, that you might know Him as Lord and Savior, and you might know the Heavenly Father as the one who is there to protect you and love you and guide you. And if you are a Christian, I pray that you will remember the name with which you were bought by and adopted into and are hidden in. And that name is Jesus. Let's pray.